from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with Cars That Matter. Welcome to another episode. My guest is Roger Griffiths, BMW i Andretti Motorsport team principal, all-around car guy, and obviously very serious about motorsport. Roger, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. It's great to have someone with so much experience and so much focus in motorsport. It's a fascinating topic and one that we haven't really had an opportunity to delve into thus far. So it's great to have you as our guest to talk about about what it really takes to win in motorsport competition. Yeah, I've been a car person since I was, I don't know, crawling around the floor at home in England. and <laughs> That's where it always starts, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the history of motor racing back in the UK goes back almost as long as it does in Italy. And been super passionate about it. I remember being in the back of my parents' car, which was unfortunately not very exciting, and just looking at all the cars going by and being able just to identify them at a very early age. And, you know, I was very fortunate, a neighbour just down the street, maybe three houses down, down he ran a garage and he used to have the local exotica car come by and he was a jaguar guy and his personal transport was a series one e-type and then oh, his, his yeah, wife was yeah. driving around in a mgb a gt but that part of essex where i grew up was just the capital of sort of the go fast industry in motorsport we had the ford of boreham where all the rally cars came out of we had yeah people developing lots of other rally cars and a, a guy called Terry Hoyle who was one of the biggest Ferrari restoration guys he was just down the street and um, early memories of walking out on my driveway and seeing a Ferrari Daytona Spider sat there because he pulled up at the wrong house. Boy that really imprints <laughs> so, early doesn't it? That's a, so, that's a heck of a way to grow up with yeah, cars. Yeah so for me it's just been a passion and it was natural as I grew older and got pushed through the school system that when I started thinking about what is a career going to be, I, I wanted to be a race engineer from very early on and, and really targeted where my education was taking me. And I've been fortunate to be able to accomplish that and more. So uh, I've been very privileged. Well, it's interesting that you had identified very early on what you wanted to be when you grew up, as they say. What about university? I guess you went to university in the UK? There was only one place really to go in the UK to study car design. There was no specific motorsport courses like there are today. There's a place called Loughborough, the University of Technology at the time, and they had a course, uh, Automotive That's like the tech college in the UK. It's like the equivalent here would be MIT, somewhere like that. And they had a course, Automotive Engineering and Design, 22 spots, typically three or four hundred applicants for those 22 spots and I managed to snag one of those so um, wasn't just snagging I suspect (laughs) it took some talent yeah it uh, it was I have to say I'm not that rocket scientist the most brainiest guy at school that's not me but I'm practical very uh, hard-working person and it's really sort of dedication and sheer effort that got me through the the university system and I I remember at the time because I I didn't go a conventional route I didn't do the typical UK route of which at the time was O-level exams up until 16 and then A-level exam, so ordinary Mm -hmm. and advanced level. And I chose at 16 to leave school and go to an engineering college. So I learned a bit of practical engineering. I learned how to work my way around a machine shop. I learned more about the hands-on approach of engineering. And I remember going to the interview there when the head of the course at Loughborough said, you know, I don't think you're going to make it. I'm prepared to offer you a place, but I don't think you're going to make it. I don't think academically you're strong enough. 
No kidding. And I remember seeing him three years later because he was, uh, <laughs> actually four years later, because he was my noise and vibration lecturer mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and said, are you still here then? And I said, yep, yeah. still here. You know, So much me, for his noise and vibration. Yeah, it uh, exactly. obviously didn't have much resonance, did it? No. And some good puns in there as well. I got through the my undergraduate degree well. And at the time, I was trying to find a spot in motor racing. And it's not straightforward to come out of university. I mean, you think you're smart, but actually you know nothing. I wanted to be in Formula One because if you're in motor racing and, and you want to go work in the industry, well, you want to set your sights very high. And very Formula high. One for me was where I wanted it to be. I wasn't able to find what I wanted. And an opportunity came up to actually further my education and to do a master's degree. And so that's what I did. I moved over to the Cranfield Institute of Technology, which was purely a postgraduate university. I spent a year there studying really similar but more advanced automotive engineering. But I had an opportunity to work with a race car constructor called Lola Cars. No yes. longer in business as yes. Lola Cars these yes. days. And at the time, they were really starting to get into trying to project how fast a racing car would be before it actually hit the track. And so my master's thesis was based on creating a mathematical model of a racing car and driving it around the track and predicting what the lap time was going to be. So um, That was complex math yeah, at a time yeah. when computing was not necessarily as advanced as it no, is today. I mean, I was writing the, the code in Fortran 77, which is a language probably nobody's heard of. <laughs> the Sanskrit of... Uh, so, yeah, yeah. But it was based around Lola's Formula 3000 car that was racing in Japan and the Suzuka circuit. And the Suzuka circuit in Japan is one of the most challenging, not just from a driver's perspective, but also from an engineer's perspective. Mm -hmm. And the first challenge I had to do was to try and define the race racing line. What line is the car going to take? And a good driver will naturally find that. But asking a computer, a computer to find that right. is not straightforward. But there'd been some interesting work done by some guys at NASA, which was looking at rocket trajectories. So I started applying some of the algorithms that they were using on how to shoot a missile from point A to point B. And depending on what characteristics you wanted that missile to go, shortest distance, fastest speed, whatever, mm -hmm. you could tune the, the algorithm. So I played around with that and ultimately wrote a program which was very successful in predicting how fast the car would go. Lola used that quite a bit. And even when my contact at Lola ultimately decided to go a different direction, he took some of that knowledge with him. And I remember getting a phone call saying, hey, I'm heading out to Miami to do the Miami street race. If I send you a track map, can you do a projection? <laughs> and, and this was really before email and all the rest of it. I remember working through the night for several nights, putting it on a three and a half inch floppy drive. Floppy, yeah and FedExing him at the hotel, and this was before they ran, and then I got within three or four tenths of a second of the qualifying time. That is phenomenal. Lap time programs today are fairly common. We use them all the time, and you can write one in Excel, but back then, none of these things existed. Even trying to create just the visual image of what the lap time would look like, the speed trace against distance or time, it was a bigger challenge as writing the actual program itself. So for me, just watching the way motorsport has embraced computing and the science behind it has been a fascinating experience. Well, an incredible evolution, obviously, as technology leapfrogs itself literally exponentially over the course of time. I guess a question that I'd have and our audience might be interested in understanding a little better, you're not an old guy, certainly. I guess you've graduated in the early 90s, so that is not exactly ancient history, but certainly a lot's gone on since then. Do the principles of your art and science, have they stayed the same? In other words, did you learn what you needed to learn then to practice today? Or is it a matter of constantly relearning? 
You're always learning. I think if you close your eyes to or in, in your ears to new information, you will stagnate and everybody else will overtake you. But the basics are still the same. Mm-hmm. Newton's laws haven't changed. <laughs> physics is physics. Engineering is engineering. I think what has changed is the tools that we have. Before it was back of an envelope calculations people mm-hmm. joke about, but sure. they truly do happen. Yeah, I'm you sure. Know, and sketching things on some a of the of best paper. designs come on cocktail napkins. Absolutely. Yeah. And now you don't necessarily have to do the math longhand. You've got a computer program that does it for you. You've got phenomenal computer-aided engineering systems. You can design it from solid models, and then you can shoot it down the pipe to the machine shop, and then it will spit it out and or grow it if you're using a 3D printer. So I think the tools that you have have allowed you to do more complex things. Mm-hmm. And the manufacturing has come a long way. Material science has really developed. You know, mm-hmm. When I was involved in the early days, carbon fiber was relatively new. That's right. You know, it was, I mean, it it was, was a, 84, I think, was the first application yeah. in Formula One with Tag. McLaren. And now it's commonplace. Everything that we're probably wearing some carbon fiber in our clothes yeah, or on our watches that's, or that's whatever. Right. You know, yeah, so that's right. Now it's dashboard trim. It's, exactly. It's, uh, so yeah. it's come a long way. And things like that have made a difference. And that's the new technology that's coming. And what I'm working on today with electrification and all the rest of it, that's the next step. And that's where the future will take us. I guess some of your work, I'm going to call it the golden era of the V10, the Ford Cosworth. That was kind of a pet project of yours. You had a lot of involvement there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And not only the golden era of performance, but sound as well. I mean, I still remember being on the pit wall in Barcelona. It didn't matter whose V10 it was, whether it was the one in the back of the Minardi or the McLaren. It was just unbelievable hearing 18,000, 19,000 RPM screaming down that front straight and just firing the engines up and with them idling at 34, 3500 RPM. And, and I don't think people can comprehend just quite how loud they were. That's right, and, and that's right. And certainly the uh, rev capacity of those engines, it's higher than some of the racing motorcycles today. I mean, it's amazing yeah, it's, that it's, those mills could actually work that fast and that hard. And just how intricate they were. I mean, yeah. I remember I was involved in the early days of the air spring development, so replacing <clears throat> valve springs with air springs, because you can't make a valve spring work. Work that fast? Yeah, it just starts to float, and then you've got no control over the valve. But with the air spring and just the quality control that we used to have to we used to build them in a clean room so a bit like when they build the bits for the space shuttle that's that's right they, they were in there building air spring assemblies and then they would come out of there and this guy in a white coat would then hand it to the <laughs> engine builder and now you've got to put it in the engine and just all the processes that you went through and it was really watching that development of how things got made how things got tested how, how the quality control was developed that allowed these huge advances in horsepower, in RPM, in longevity of the engines, because without Mm -hmm. all of that, which is somewhat boring to the uninitiated... But those little details are really fundamental and very important details that that allow advancements to be made. And obviously the costs are astronomical, not probably far apart from NASA projects themselves. (laughs) But how has metallurgy changed over the course of the last decade or two? Is that, apart from computer-aided design and modeling, how has the metallurgy itself actually allowed advancements. It's an interesting one because a lot of new materials came onto the market. There was an awful lot of use of titanium. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of use of things like beryllium. And then people started to realize that it wasn't necessarily in the best interest of the sport to allow these things. I mean, things like beryllium... Are, well, that's a are, deadly material. Yeah, so it's super dangerous to start machining it and beryllium brake calipers and things like that soon got outlawed. Mm-hmm. Titanium, it's great but it's expensive. So as people started to recognize, it's great to have all of this 
technology, but it comes at a cost. Mm. And as we start to see teams falling off the back of the grid and manufacturers losing interest because the budgets are just going crazy, we actually started to ban those materials or to limit the use into certain applications. You could justify them because in some areas they would allow uh, a good reliability improvement, Mm -hmm. which then would Mm -hmm. mean a part would last longer. But then there was also, you know, when you started making bolts out of titanium and things like that. That's start, a rich man's sport. Yeah. And it's a rich you know, man's sport anyway. Yeah. And you just start to sort of question your sanity at doing these things. So it creates a little more level playing field than when things are kept to a bit of a dull roar and the insanity doesn't completely yeah, uh, I mean, uh, ride unbridled through. Uh, well, it just, it's, you know, for me, an analogy I give, it's like grabbing hold of an eel or a sausage. You squeeze it in one area and then it pops out <laughs> in somewhere else. You know, so you try and throttle back in some area and... Motorsport attracts some of the brightest individuals, the brightest engineers, and you want them because of their thinking and what they can do. And that means you've got to control them. That's right. Well, and, you know, and that's, that's the fun bit. That's where the creativity comes in. You know, it's interesting. Nobody goes into motorsport because they have to. I often imagine some poor engineer relegated to designing garbage disposals and dishwashers is probably not having the best day when he goes to work. But nobody who's involved in motorsport isn't at least anticipating a great day. Certainly their frustrations and their challenges and any number of incredible stresses that you would have to face on a regular basis. But you're there because you want to be. Yeah, I mean, things don't always work out even when you're working at the very pinnacle of motor racing and sometimes tempers get a bit frayed because everybody's under a lot of pressure to Mm -hmm. do well and everybody wants to exceed we're all a bunch of crazy people i mean we're all very eccentric we all have strange personalities but i think this is what makes motor racing so interesting but what i say to people is when it's going wrong i said look you can't just blame one person. That person did not wake up in the morning and say, how can I mess this up? <laughs> they went yeah. to work attempting to do their very best because mm-hmm. motor racing is a passion. It's not a job. And it's, it's a team it's, sport. It's, not, it, it's a team sport. It's, it's a career choice. It's a lifestyle. I mean, I, I can't count the number of birthdays, weddings, whatever I've missed. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, I didn't miss my own wedding, but I've missed my own wedding anniversary yeah, and I've missed yeah. my wife's birthday and, and my birthdays. And you just accept that that's a choice you've made. So nobody goes into motor racing thinking, oh, this is going to be easy. And well, those that do don't last very long because it's tough. And when I've interviewed a lot of young engineers for for positions and said, just remember, when your friends are down the pub at 11 o'clock on a Friday night, you'll you're you're in the garage with me. So you've got to decide what you want to be because if you're resentful, then you're not going to last very long. But if you love it, this is the best job in the world. Oh, that's amazing advice. And obviously, you've had a lot of great jobs. I mean, your resume kind of checks all the boxes of motorsport. We're talking a lot about Formula One now, and we'll talk about Formula E later on, but you've been involved in touring cars and the LMP. Think about Formula One cars with covered wheels, yeah. as it yeah. were. Talk about some of the different tangents you've traveled. For me, I mean, I went from Formula One to touring cars and almost within a week. And I remember being testing in Barcelona or Jerez or whatever it was with a Formula One car. Because you kind of start to get used to the speed. You get numb to it. Mm-hmm. And then we went testing at Pembury, which is a little track in the middle of nowhere in Wales with a touring car. And it was my first time ever with a touring car. And I watched it come round. And I just sort of turned around to the race engineer and said, so is he on his warm-up lap? <laughs> oh, no, he's on it. <laughs> he's on it. He's <laughs> like, on it full oh. boil. Yeah. yeah. Oh. But after a while, you recalibrate. And touring cars taught me a lot about the mechanical aspects of racing cars. You know, Formula One is tires, it's horsepower, and it's aero. That's all that matters. The fact that you've got 
springs and dampers on the car are purely there to put the wheels in the right place right. and to stop the thing getting out of control. Glass smooth tracks yeah, and, you, and you don't perfection. really do anything. I remember being at Minardi and the dampers that we started the season in Australia were the same ones that we had on the car in, Is that in, right? so in no, Japan. So no, no development. It, the development actually was you pick it up, you put it on a scale, how heavy is it? Okay, that one's lighter, that one goes on the car. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter about the valving, the shim stack, whatever. Sure. On a touring car, because you've got next to no downforce, you've got narrow tyres, you don't have much horsepower. It's all about maintaining momentum. So mm-hmm. you have to be able to ride the curbs, you have to be able to get best traction, you have to be able to control the car under the brakes. So the mechanical grip of the car suddenly became much more interesting. And for me, that was a fascinating path to go down to learn about oh, this stuff is important. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was actually a little bit closer to some of the vehicle dynamics that I'd studied as a student, understanding how springs and dampers and unsprung mass and what does that all mean and how does that work and why is it important. And that was a really good education for me. But no, it was fascinating to work on the touring cars. It went from being an international championship, a world championship that Formula One was, to a national championship. Mm -hmm. So instead of traveling all around Europe and potentially around the world, it was just traveling within the UK. But going back to some of the circuits that I used to go to as a child with my mother, you know, go to watch historic cars. That had to be a a very gratifying aspect of the whole thing. In British touring cars and also here in uh, IndyCar racing, you're much closer to the public and actually seeing the people there and talking to them and hearing what they're interested in and seeing their enthusiasm was a lot of fun. Of course, you were eventually back to Cosworth, I guess, with uh, Minardi, is that right? Yeah, I got a phone call one night and said, what are you up to? No kidding. I said, well, have you ever thought about coming back? And I'm like, well, it depends. Mm-hmm. What did you have in mind? And they said, well, we need somebody to run the Minardi Formula One program. There's been a big push. Minardi want to spend some good money, but we don't have anybody to run it. So are you interested? And I was like, sure. And I, I went back and it was actually a different department within Cosworth. So when I'd been there previously, it was the factory Formula One program. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. this was the customer Formula One program. Minardi, of course, an old Italian racing family, went back to the days of Fiat back in the 20s, right? Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And just the enthusiasm of the team. I mean, Formula One teams today are huge. They are 800 people. Minardi at the time was 110 people. And that was everybody. If you happen to be in the factory on a race weekend, it would be you and the cleaner. That would be it. No, it it was a lot of fun. I, I literally joined Minardi three weeks before the Australian Grand Prix. So I was there to run the program, but I was also running Mark Genet's car as the engine guy. Never seen the Magneti Morelli system before. Not worked on this particular iteration of engine. I've been out of it for two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Everything moves very quickly in Formula One. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember thinking, this is going to be fun going to Australia. <laughs> I went to one test and I remember being on the grid. And, you know, unfortunately, Minardi always was qualifying at the back. Yeah. But right at the start of the Australian Grand Prix, having as the cars were all forming up on the grid, having to step backwards to avoid being run over by Michael Schumacher and his Ferrari. And I was like, this is pretty cool. I guess if you have to get run over. Yeah, it's not a bad person to do. Yeah, that's a great bit of history there. And where'd you go after that? So what happened with Minardi was it basically got to the end of the Ford program. And Ford basically said, we're not going to do customer racing anymore. We had one year's grace where we were able to resurrect the program under a sort of an independent and the engines were branded Fon Metal, which was Mm -hmm. the parent company that co-owned Minardi. Gabrielli Rumi owned the company. And so we rebranded the engines Fon Metal. We actually got kicked out of Cosworth. 
and we had to go round the corner to a little two-up, two-down industrial unit. No kidding. So that was where we ran the program for. They kicked us out of the engine test cells and the, the engine shop, so we had to move the whole manufacturing process and the testing of the engines about 15 miles down the road to a local engine builder. We built a brand-new dyno for him. With the engines that we took to the first two races in Australia and I think it was Kuala Lumpur, were built at Cosworth. But when we went to Silverstone in, I think it was end of April, we actually had the first engines that we were building at the new place. And we'd built a complete new engine shop in the interim. So it was fascinating. Talk about fast track. It was fascinating to completely hands on to do that. But that came to an end. They eventually sold to Red Bull or something like that? Yeah, well, it sold to Paul Stoddart. European, it became European Minardi, and I did a few races with Paul, and Paul saved the team, but it probably would have been the death of me to keep working for him because he was just (laughs) a crazy guy. Okay, but he saved the team, and then ultimately got sold to Red Bull. But I left Minardi and and went to work for an independent company called Ascari, Mm -hmm. and they kind of had two projects. One was a racing program, and one was a road car program. The guy that owned Ascari was a Dutchman that had made all his money in the oil industry. I think he was a driller. And I think he invented the self-cleaning drill head or something like that because he got fed up with the drill bit going down to the seabed, clogging up and then having to bring it all up again. So he got the patent on that, made a fortune, and he owned thousands of sports cars and all the rest of it. Anyhow, so he wanted to race and he actually wasn't a bad racing driver. So he set up a team to run in the World Sports Car Championship and I went there to ultimately to end up being chief engineer there. What happened was I went to work on the road car which was McLaren, Ferrari-esque type mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. I remember the it. KZ1, I think yeah. it was called. It never uh, came to America, of course, no. but I remember seeing it in all the magazines yeah, at the time. So, so I worked on that car, and when I first showed up, it was purely a clay model and just a car that was something from the auto show. It wasn't a functioning car. But someone found out that I was into racing and said, well, can you come and have a look at our race car? And before I knew it, I was working weekdays on the road car and weekends on the race car, going to the race events. And I'd been to Le Mans as a spectator, but I actually went to Le Mans in 2001 as a race engineer and and ran the car at Le Mans. And then in 2002, we decided to do our own sort of pick and choose or cherry pick the best races around the world in terms of sports car stuff. So we did Daytona, we did Sebring, and then we went to Le Mans. And then the plan was to do maybe Petit Le Mans at Road Atlanta later in the year. But we invested a tremendous amount of money in building the team and the presence up and all the rest of it. And in 2001, we had two entries at Le Mans. In 2002, they only gave us one. And that kind of tipped Klaus over the edge. And he said, you know, I've spent all this money. I've done everything the ACO has asked me to do, but they've only given me one entry. So I'm done playing in this. So I'm going to take my balls. He took his money and his toys and went home. Yeah, we went to Le Mans in in 2002. And when the checkered flag dropped at 4 p.m., we were all out of work. But we knew that going there. But it was fun. You know, it was 18 months of really, really hard work, but it was pretty interesting. And twice going to Le Mans, going to Sebring, going to Daytona. Those were the the big races. Yeah, that, that for me was fun. After that, was it time to come to the States? Yeah. Again, it was a phone call. What are you up to? Would you be interested in working in California? And I said, yes, but tell me more. And it turns out it was Honda. Honda has its North American racing headquarters in Santa Clarita, not too far from here. The position was to head up their IndyCar race team. They just transitioned from... Oh, a small job. Yeah. (laughs) Just transitioned from Champ Car Racing to the new IRL. Mm -hmm. It was their first season. I guess things weren't going as they had hoped. 
and they needed somebody maybe a bit more experienced coming in to take over that role. So I joined actually Nazareth was my very first race and it was a, a huge shock. I mean, coming from Europe, whether it's Formula One or sports car racing and the European style of circuit to arriving in the middle of nowhere in <laughs> Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's... Allentown, that would be, Pennsylvania. That, would, and, that and, would be true. And then you're in, in Nazareth on a tri-oval. I ended up staying there for just over 10 years. That's Indy, a long stint in, for you. Indy, I mean, that's Indy a, car racing. Yeah. I came over with preconception of the level of talent, engineering, whatever, mm-hmm. and I was completely wrong completely underestimated the quality of people, how hard people worked, the level of engineering that went into running an IndyCar. I was super surprised, very pleasantly surprised. And I had 10 great years working with Honda. I mean, win team championships, drivers championships, the Indy 500. I saw Honda's participation as the sole engine supplier in Indianapolis and and the IndyCar series from 2006 to 2011. That's right. That was a three liter V8, I guess. Yeah. It dominated the sport. I actually have a great story about my boss. Michael Andretti because he at the time he was team owner and in 2006 and 7 I think it was he decided to come out of retirement and have one last shot at trying to win the 500 and I remember him whenever one of his drivers whether it was Dario or Tony Kanaan would say oh I think my engine's down he'd, he'd ask me and he'd go what do you think and I'd say I can't see anything Michael but if you want me to take it out we'll put it back on the dyno at Honda and we'll see if there's a problem with uh-huh. it and he'd be like no that's good I'm okay with it and then the instant he got behind the wheel, he came in, he said, the engine's down on power. And I just looked at him and thought, drivers. Yeah, you know, yeah, so. yeah. yeah. Oh, but and I, I still tell him that today, you know, he, he knows that. I remember being at the 500 when 33 cars, the most terrifying moment for me was when they used to say, ladies and gentlemen, because several ladies were racing at the time, start your engines. And I'm like, please start. I've got 33 <laughs> engines. Every last one please of them has to start. start. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, I think it was 2008, Elio was on pole, Elio Castroneves, and it didn't start. And I could hear it on the radio, yeah. it won't start. Yeah. And there was this frantic activity because the, the whole field goes off to do the formation laps. And we had to have the side pod off and completely power cycle the car and oh, then gosh. disconnect yeah. the battery. We got it all back together and nobody really noticed. But I remember at the time thinking, we've got to change that. We, we can't have to disassemble the car to be able to do a full power reset. So. Oh, well, you, you certainly had success at Indianapolis. In fact, I see a, you brought a very interesting memento from, uh, I guess it's 2010, a, a ring that symbolizes the victory. I mean, it's essentially equivalent of an NFL Super Bowl ring of America's greatest race. Can you tell us about that season and yeah, then what happened in 2012 um, especially? So 2010, I mean, it, it was Honda with sole supply. We're not supposed to have faith. Favorites, but you always do. And, yeah. you know, the Ganassi team for me with Dario Franchitti, Scott Dixon were my two favorite drivers at the time. 2010, Dario won the 500 and he also won the championship that year. And it was also Honda's 100th IndyCar win. And uh-huh. I'd been there for, I think it was 98 or 99 of those wins. So for me, that win was super special. And I don't often ask for things. I just feel privileged to be in the pit lane as it is. Sure, sure. But once in a while, something comes along, and, and I did approach Mike Hull, who's the managing director of Ganassi Racing, and said, Mike, any chance I can get an Indy 500 win uh, ring? And he said, like, absolutely. Well, so, you, certainly, you certainly earned it. Uh, so, uh, so that's one I've got. I mean, I, I've got another one at home from 2014. I mean, I, I never got the rings when Honda was sole supply because for me that didn't count. It wasn't competition. I mean, obviously for the team it was super important. Yeah, but for yeah. me as the engine supplier, it, it, it didn't matter. But 2012 for me was 
super special year. It was the first year of a new engine and when we transitioned from the V8 to the V6 turbocharged engine. The, the regulations allow you to be single or twin turbo. Honda had gone the single turbo route. Chevy had gone the twin turbo route. And we had had a difficult start to the season. I mean, our engine was not only down on power, but it was also unreliable, mm. kind of the worst combination. We made some progress, and at Long Beach, we introduced a, a new turbo spec, which was approved by IndyCar. But it, it came as a big shock to Chevy because IndyCar hadn't made them aware of this. And immediately, we ended up in court. So they filed. Yeah, yeah. And um, anyhow, there was a long, drawn-out court process, and I remember literally flying back from Brazil to go straight to Indianapolis to sit in depositions oh, and, and hearings oh. with, and all the rest of it. And ultimately, Honda prevailed and we were able to keep the parts because what Chevy wanted to do, and you know, I probably would have done the same, was to delay the introduction until after the Indy 500 because the Indy 500 is what matters. Nobody the, cares who wins the championship. Nobody oh, yeah, cares if you won 10 races. If you don't win the Indy 500, it doesn't matter. And so... Yeah. Back in February of that year, when we were talking about the spec of the 2012 Indy 500 engine, we didn't know what to do. People said, oh, we've got all these different ideas and, you know, all these different developments and you could add up the horsepower and if you cumulatively added it up, we got 12 and I knew that would really be three. And I just said, look, we've got to build an engine for the Indy 500. I don't care about any other race after that because IndyCar changed the regulations that you were now only allowed so many engines per year, so you were having to carry them over to other events. And IndyCar, because it was a turbocharged engine, three different boost levels. So Indy was the lowest boost, mm -hmm. and then there was a medium boost level, and then when you went road course racing, you had the high boost level. So you basically had to make an engine work at the different boost levels. And for the engineers amongst us, lower boost means higher compression ratio, right. higher boost typically lower compression ratio. So I said... I don't care what happens after Indy. I don't care if we blow up every engine after Indy. If <laughs> Which, we can win the 500, yeah. that's all that matters. Let's build an so engine. So high compression, high low compression. boost, and, and be damned what happens yeah. later on. And, if the compression uh, kills the motors, that's so be so, it. So be it. And, and these were literally race engines, the race engines. They didn't go in until carb day or the day before carb day. And I remember back in April, we did the Indy test and talking to Chip Ganassi and him saying, we're a bit off the pace, aren't we? And I'm like, yep. He says, have you got anything for the 500? I said, I think so. I think we've got something. And he says, okay, I trust you. Anyhow, we went into qualifying and I think the best Honda car was ninth. It was awful. I remember being interviewed on TV <laughs> literally after the gun had gone off at the end of qualifying and it was just... Oh, that's yeah, quite a hot seat to be on. <laughs> that's not a good place to be. And But we fitted the engines for carb day and uh, the Honda cars went out and Ganassi went one-two in practice on carb day morning. And the smiles on you their faces... feel pretty good about that. ...when they were pushing the cars back. And anyhow, so we went into the race and all the Honda cars had the new spec engine. And what you started to see in uh, Indy, they have the pylon with the scoring pylon. So you mm -hmm. can see, and it was like these little ants marching upwards. And you slowly <laughs> saw the Honda numbers starting to creep towards the top. But what I was looking for was the first pit stop, because that really tells you where people are on fuel mileage, mm -hmm. because you don't know what the opposition is doing on fuel mileage. And I started to see the Chevy cars coming in first. And I thought, yes, we've got this. That's what you want. Because not only did we have more power, we had better yeah, fuel better economy. Range. Yeah. And ultimately, it panned out, and, you know, we got a Ganassi 1-2. Dario won it, Dixon was second. It was a super special win for me because 2011 at uh, Las Vegas, we lost a very good friend of ours, Dan Weldon, and he'd been super close to both Dario and Scott. And, you know, for the Ganassi team, 
to win that race and Dan had been a Ganassi driver. Mm. I think it brought a little bit of closure for everybody. and A tribute of sorts. Yeah, and, and for me, it was just total relief. <laughs> I wasn't really there to celebrate. It was just the relief of believing in something that I thought was right back in February. Engineer's intuition. Yeah. Obviously, then, you're... But then the, the, the ironic bit it was, so the very next race was Detroit. So we took these indie high-compression, low-boost engines to Detroit, turned them up to 1.5 bar boost, and put them one, two, three on the podium in Detroit, in Chevy's backyard. And they so, stayed together they and stayed then together turned together into little hand grenades. So it was fantastic. It, was, fantastic. You know, it wasn't enough to save the championship, but it, sort of, it certainly saved some face at the end of the year. So. Well, what a fantastic story. Thanks for sharing that. And obviously, that was a great and memorable season for you and team members, but it sounds like a personal victory as well. With the close of that 2012 season, let's take a break. We'll come back with Roger Griffiths and talk about the state of racing today and some of the exciting things you're doing in Formula E. Absolutely. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Sometimes the exceptional is not the biggest budget. Sometimes the exceptional is someone's ability to actually take their soul and print it on the screen for a moment. I want to learn everything that there is to know about the filmmaking process. I think part of art is hearing from the artists who create it. And the number of different visions, the number of different qualifications that have to go into making any film is insurmountable. And hearing those stories can be just as exciting and insightful as the movies themselves. Certain movies or certain scores, certain actors, have shaped who I am as a person. I have such appreciation for the things that people produce and the work that goes into it. Whether it's the writer who came up with the story in general or how the filmmakers were able to take that from the page and put it onto screen and then from the actors themselves who were able to kind of bring that all to life. All of it is what I want to hear because it makes me love my favorite movies even more. I'm Scott Talal. If you love movies like I do, you're going to love Hollywood Unscripted. Wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we're back after the break with Roger Griffiths. Roger, what a fantastic conversation talking about the history of your involvement in motorsport, specifically engine and suspension engineering and, and the successes you had. But now you're wearing a different hat with BMWi Andretti Motorsport as the team principal in a whole new era of racing, really, ushered in by F1 Formula E Racing Series. As I understand it, it was proposed by Gene Tote, the former Ferrari CEO and twice the president of FIA, as kind of a novel concept and probably laughed out of the room initially. But I think the last laugh is one that you're having now. Tell us about uh, the state of the art right now with the sport. The, the story is fascinating how Formula E has evolved. It was a conversation between Jean Todd, as you say, and Alejandro Agag, who's the chairman of Formula E. It was in a, I believe, in a cafe in Paris somewhere in 2011, 2012. If you go and hear Alejandro talk, He'll bring up that conversation every time in his speech. So I've heard the speech a few times. But, you know, I, I've been involved with Formula E since day one. When I chose to move on from Honda and I actually went to work for Andretti Autosport, for Michael Andretti, I went there as the director of motorsport development. So really overseeing all of their motor racing operations. And they just committed to doing Formula E. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't have anything. We didn't have a car. We didn't, we didn't have a fully-fledged team. We did have a premises in the UK at the Donington Park racetrack. And Michael said to me, he said, I need you to have a look at this. 
and my initial reaction was electric racing cars, really? <laughs> Having come from big horsepower, big That's numbers. Right. The last time any of us had talked about electric cars was a little slot cars, you know, but yep. boy, they did go fast around that model yeah. track. Yeah. So went over and, and had a look at the car. The car wasn't great, but I, I went to the very first test and I came away from it and I got asked, what did I think? And I said, I think it's going to work. I said, the product, it's not great. It's slow. We actually started racing with about 135 kilowatts, which is not a great deal. It's, what, 180, 190 horsepower. And after that very first test at that, they asked if they could bump the power up to 150 kilowatts, which is still not a tremendous amount, but it's a bit more just because the cars just look so slow. Mm -hmm. But what convinced me it was going to work was who was associated with it. It was the names of the people that were behind it. So you you had the FIA, the World Governing Body of Mm -hmm. Motorsport, accredited it. So a lot of resources there. You had Michelin were providing the tyres. You had Williams Advanced Engineering providing the battery. You had McLaren Automotive Technology providing the electric motor and power inverter. And and the electric motor and power inverter are actually the same one as used the McLaren hypercar, the P1. Mm -hmm. Just tweaked to get a bit more power out of it. You had guys like Alain Prost, you had my boss, Michael Andretti, you had, you know, Sir Frank Williams was there, I remember seeing him. So every company and every name that mattered. Yeah, and and you're seeing these people in the pit lane. And I thought, there's a lot of reputations on the line here. This is going to work. No flash in the pan. Yeah, this won't fail. We put a team together, and I remember we were operating this car and testing, and we did not know what we were doing. (laughs) And and nobody in the pit lane knew what they were doing. I mean, it was a a scattering of sort of ex-Formula One drivers, out-of-work drivers, people that probably should have been in retirement. It was like Thomas Edison with his first experiments at AC. So, and and a lot of people were looking at it, oh, well, this is just a bit of a second job. Mm -hmm. It was promoted as a bit of a winter series off-season, so people were thinking, well... I can do this and then I can go and get a job in real motorsport, if you like, for the full season. And we went to Beijing for the very first race. You know, we had 20 cars out there. Everybody was terrified that it wouldn't work. But we got through Beijing collectively as a championship. We got through Beijing. We had a great race. And and you've probably seen the highlight reel right at the very last corner of, I think it was one of the Edam's cars and the Venturi car colliding Mm -hmm. first and second and two cars upside down and bits everywhere for us as andretti it was a quite successful race we finished second and fourth in our first one and came away leading the championship and really from there formula e has taken off in season one it was a spec car but what they allowed it to do was to slowly evolve and it was one of the smartest things i've ever seen in motorsport was that the fia put together a five-year rolling plan of how they saw the technology evolving within formula e they put together this roadmap and you know season one is this the spec car season two is this season three we expect these power increases we're going to allow certain aspects of development to open up as a group within the technical working group which i was part of at the time we discussed a lot and talked about what was the right and wrong thing to do because we were all very conscious about wanting this championship to survive and if we allowed too much technical freedom then it it really comes down to who's got the most money and Mm -hmm. then they'll run away with the championship. But one of the things that prevents Formula E, even that happening today, is the output of the battery is controlled, it's fixed. So in racing, it's 200 kilowatts. In qualifying, it's 250 kilowatts. So that's strictly controlled from the FIA, which means it's not a horsepower race. Mm -hmm. So you can't produce more horsepower. You can be more efficient. Mm -hmm. So you can put more of that 200 kilowatts to the ground, 
but it's not like oh my engine's better than your engine because it produces more power because it's controlled and you know electric motors and power inverters are super efficient as it is you know the electric motor is what 98% efficient power inverter with the latest silicon carbide MOSFET technology is 99% efficient so there's very limited gains to be had but it comes down to how you put that package together how you manage the energy so what happened with Formula E in the beginning is the battery wasn't powerful enough or, or didn't have enough energy within it to go the full race distance. So we had two cars for the two drivers, two cars per driver. Mm-hmm. People say, why didn't you charge the battery? Well, yes, it was quick to charge, but it's still an hour long pit stop. Why didn't you change the battery? Well, it's going to be another hour to change sure. the battery. So the, the simplest solution was actually to change cars, two cars, which actually added an element of strategy to it. As we evolved through season two, season three, the quality of the engineering got better. The professionalism of the teams got better. The championship promoter got better. What it started to do then was to attract big sponsors, mm-hmm. the big car companies. Jaguar has come in, Audi stepped That's up. right, with their iPace, they've been yep. sponsoring, promoting that, I guess. Yep. As a... yep. But back up for a moment. I mean, you cut your teeth on internal combustion. How do the lessons you learned in the design and development of these F1 cars, how do those actually apply to Formula E? I mean, what do you keep? What's the biggest difference, apart from, obviously, the power, the mode of power itself? Does it require a whole new set of technical skill sets, or do you have to go back to school to learn this stuff? There was a little bit of going back to school. So in in Formula E, you operate the car under two very different conditions. So qualifying, maximum power, no limitation on the energy that you have from the battery. Just go out there and drive as fast as possible. So that is just like any other form of motorsport. But then when we get to the race, the battery capacity we have if we were to drive flat out, is not enough Mm -hmm. to get us to the end of the race. So we have to start doing what we refer to as energy management. The best way to describe energy management to somebody that doesn't understand it, imagine that you're in your car and the fuel lights come on and it says you've got 30 miles left in your car, but the nearest fuel station is 36 miles away. How are you going to get there? You're going to coast a lot. Lift and coast. Lift and coast. You know, you you put the if it's a manual car, you'll be putting into the neutral. Mm -hmm. You'll be rolling down the hill. You won't be putting your foot on the brake. You'll be very gentle on the throttle application. That's exactly what we do for 45 minutes plus one lap in a Formula E car, but going as fast as humanly possible and racing each other. And that's what we had to learn. We had to learn energy management. Do the drivers like these cars? Absolutely, because they're super challenging. You talk to people that have driven LMP1, they've driven Formula 1. I mean, we've got guys that were on the grid in Formula 1, you know, Jean-Éric Verne, Sebastian Buemi, Lucas Degrassi, and they say this is the most technically challenging car they've ever had to drive because physically it's not a tough car to drive because it's not super fast. The G-forces aren't that high. We're on a treaded tyre, although it is a competition tyre. Mm-hmm. But I refer to it as sort of spare mental capacity. How much more of your brain can you use than beyond just driving the car? That's fascinating. Fascinating. So so this driver needs to be thinking about all of these things. We give them a lot of cues. Like, so for example, when a driver's going down the straight, there's various phases. So he'll accelerate out of the last corner. He'll go down the straight. At some point, he will then start to lift off and he will coast for a bit and then he will pull what we refer to as a regen paddle so when he's Mm -hmm. coasting there is some amount of energy going back into the battery when he pulls the regen paddle we start to decelerate the car more sharply using purely the electric motor on its own and then finally he will apply the brakes so he needs to know when to do that so we will give him audible cues through his headset 
various beeps and the, depending on the tone of the beep depends on which one he needs to do and we will map that all the way around the racetrack for him so he knows he has these cues that say do this do this do this what a learning curve and then we tell him basically you have x amount of energy per lap so you you know so many kilowatt hours per lap that you can expend and if you go over it you've got to find a way to save it back over the, the next coming laps or if you go under it you've banked that for mm-hmm. later use. And, you know, we'll have a bar graph on the steering wheel which shows whether he's red or green and all the rest of it. And so we're always trying to save a little bit. And they'll, they'll say, I can't get past this guy, so I'm just going to save a bit. And then we'll say, okay, now you can use a little bit more to make the pass. So we're looking at this all the time. But at the same time, the battery's getting hot. Just like when you use your cell phone, if you start using it heavily, the battery gets hot. That's if you, right. And if you plug it into charge, it gets hot. So we're drawing power out of it. We're putting power back into it. It's getting hot. And with the current battery, when it gets to 72 degrees, it shuts down. And that's a safety feature so we don't get thermal runaway. That's interesting. So certainly there you're using technologies or proposing technologies that exist in consumer products to bring to the racetrack. I guess the real question or the crystal ball to put in front of you, Roger, would be how does this Formula E likely impact the cars that will be actually driving on the street. I mean, is there a trickle-down theory here that we can sort of anticipate future developments? I've talked about the transfer of technology racing to the road. I've talked about it over the years, and this is the first time I've actually believed it. I'll give you an example. Ah. So the with the BMW i powertrain that we use in our car, this was actually designed by the same people that did the electric motor for the i3 and the i8. Mm-hmm. So it's the very same engineers getting involved in a racing program, which is normally unheard of. You know, right. road car guys are never allowed anywhere near a racing car. That's right. But what they're learning is about how to develop products for racing much more efficiently, much more quickly. And they're trialing technologies in racing that will have a direct relevance to road car stuff. For example, the power inverters that we use, um, I mentioned it earlier, silicon carbide MOSFET technologies, which is the switching technology inside Mm -hmm. the power inverter. That's the very, very latest and greatest. And two years ago, they're ungodly expensive, the individual components. Never would see them in a road car. But the price point is coming down and down and down. And now I'm hearing they're talking about putting them into road cars. And what that means is that the efficiency of the power inverter is so much higher using that technology and that in racing that transfers to horsepower and mm-hmm. but in road cars that transfers to range and, and range is a critical thing that they're after in road cars so I think what Formula E is doing is not only pushing the boundaries of electrification and the technology within the cars, but also demonstrating to people that it is a viable alternative means of transportation and they're actually sending a message that it can be sexy, it can be fast, it sure. can be fun. And, and Obviously, Porsche and McLaren and Ferrari proved that you yeah, know, a few exactly. years ago with their supercars that yep. were hybrid electrics. And obviously now the full EV concept is coming into full bloom. Yep. And, and it's a message that we're promoting all the time with what we do. And it's also talking about not wanting to get political, but it's our responsibilities to the environment and to the greater world around us that we cannot keep doing the same things. We cannot keep burning fossil fuels. Is electrification going to replace the internal combustion engine? I mean, it's certainly looking that way in some countries. Mm-hmm. Maybe hybrid technology is perhaps the better route because of the, the ultimate range you can get from it. But for certainly inner city transportation, I mean, living here in Los Angeles, you can run an electric car all day long and it will make zero difference compared to your travel time from A to B. That's right. Within That's the absolutely city. right. In and fact, you could take easier. an electric turtle and it would be just as fast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
But that's absolutely true. I mean, the writing is on the wall that makes what was until very recently really sort of a fantasy technology and a a fantasy concept all of a sudden look like possibly the most logical solution. Yeah, but we, Formula E is not perfect. And I refer to it as cradle to grave. We have to look at where we get the technology from the individual components. You know, we're digging cobalt out of the the ground in South America or China. China, And, and, you know, where does lithium ion come from? How do we charge our cars? It's all very well having a green racing series, but if we don't get the energy that we provide, the electricity that we provide from a sustainable, renewable source... Coming from a coal mine, it really doesn't change things too much. So we have to look at that, and Formula E is for sure looking at that. And I think they've actually woken Formula One up to that as well. You know, Formula One's talking about its sustainable roadmap over the next five to ten years. And I think without Formula E being this young upstart, Mm -hmm. Formula One wouldn't have done that. So I think whether you like Formula E, or not and you know there's a lot of emotion around Formula E and particularly with the more traditional motorsport fan the noise the sound the the smell the the roar of the big V8 that's a hard sell but I think in answering some of these questions it's certainly ticking the boxes Roger Griffiths thank you so much for joining us I know that our listeners have learned an awful lot and where can they learn a little more about Formula E so I think the best place to have an initial first look at it on the web fiaformulae.com very simple you can learn all about the championship the teams and really what Formula E stands for and you know hopefully we'll get a few new uh, viewers and supporters going forward trackside thank you thank you join us next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive Hello, friends and fellow car lovers. Just so you can plan your trip, Cars That Matter will be taking a break for a few weeks. But in the meantime, make sure you're caught up by going back and listening to our previous episodes. And be sure to share Cars That Matter with someone you know who loves cars as much as we do. Subscribe to Cars That Matter to get notified the moment we release the next episode. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, sound engineering by Michael Kennedy, Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Edited by A.J. Mosley. Recorded at Kirkco's Malibu Podcast Studios. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Today's guest was Roger Griffith. Tune into Cars That Matter wherever you rev up your podcasts. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.